comes from John chapter 9, verses 18 through 23. If it sounds like I'm starting in the middle of the passage, it's because I am starting in the middle of the passage. Uh, I've been preaching through John chapter 9, which is Jesus' miracle. Jesus declares that he is the light of the world, and then he demonstrates that he is the light of the world in the healing of a man who had been blind from birth, something that had never happened before. It sort of rocks the whole city of Jerusalem as everyone's trying to investigate and figure out what is happening here. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. And just a word of note, I I would like to thank you for the privilege of being able to deliver God's word this morning to us. Uh, Most of you, maybe all of you, don't know that the first sermon I preached in this presbytery was in this very pulpit back in 2004 when I was being examined for a call to a another church in our presbytery. Now, I was preaching on John chapter 10 uh, then, so uh, again, in God's providence, almost in the same portion of the Gospel of John that we're looking at this morning. But we'll be looking at John chapter 9, verses 18 through 23. Hear now the word of God. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we come this morning to your word. We ask and pray that you would grant us a right and clear understanding of your word. Father, illumine our minds. Help us by your Holy Spirit to understand and to see the glories of Jesus Christ and to know the gospel of Jesus and also to be able to take these words of your Holy Scripture and apply them, that you would grow us up, grow us to spiritual maturity through your word Father, we ask all these things in the great and wondrous name of Jesus. Amen. One of the fears that has recently come to dominate our society, our culture, is that of what has been commonly called in the last few years as cancel culture. Now, people can be canceled, and by that they mean removed from their jobs or removed from a particular position of power by something they said, something they wrote, even if that was many years ago, even if they are a different person now than they were then. Uh, When I was uh, finishing college and beginning uh, my first career as a high school teacher, the the popular phrase of that day was political correctness. You always wanted to make sure that you said something that was deemed to be politically correct by the culture around you. Now, at that particular time, it mostly involved changing the names of sports teams. But the difference with cancer culture is that it has far more teeth. Uh, People have a genuine fear of what 
might happen to them if they say the wrong thing in front of the wrong person. And calling first century Jerusalem a place of cancel culture would probably be a bit of a stretch. There was no, there were no newspapers where you could write op-ed pieces. There was no social media there to make comments about what you said. But there was still the fear that if you did not keep your head down low and keep your mouth shut, that you might say the wrong thing, particularly in the presence of religious authorities. And that might make things very difficult for you. Well, in John chapter 9, Jesus performs an extraordinary miracle. He heals a man who had been blind from birth. Back in verse 2 of this chapter, his disciples asked him, it says, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And this was a common teaching in the day. It was that there was a direct link between suffering and sin. So if someone was suffering, particularly in the way that this man had been suffering, well, it must have been either him or his parents who had sinned. But Jesus says in verse 3 of this chapter, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus heals the man, but that inevitably causes a lot of controversy. Uh, There are divided opinions about what Jesus had done, what had really happened. Some were saying maybe this man wasn't really blind from birth, or maybe it's not really him, it's just someone who looks like him, uh, pretending to be him. And according to the religious leaders, Jesus couldn't have performed this miracle because they deemed him to be a sinner. In this particular case, they said because he had made clay, he spit in dirt and made clay and applied it to the man's eyes and that this was on the Sabbath day that he was breaking the Sabbath. I told that to my kids in our family worship last night and they said that, that, that's nothing more than like, like squishing Play-Doh between your fingers. And yet they were accusing Jesus of being a lawbreaker by doing this. And so after listening to the crowds and interviewing the man, the religious leaders now turn to the man's parents, and they want to ask them and interview them. And here's where the fear of others begins to show itself. And if we're not careful, we can find that same kind of fear creeping into our own hearts as we live in this world. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is, what will you do when cancel culture comes looking for you? Uh, How will you respond to it? Well, those are some of the lessons that we have in this morning's passage. The first thing we see here is the questioning of the Jews. And in their questioning, John makes it very clear that they are asking their questions in unbelief. They don't believe that this has really happened or that Jesus is who he says he is. Verse 18, then the Jews then did not believe it of him. Uh, They can't believe the testimony. They refuse to believe the testimony of this formerly blind man. Again, they they did not believe that he had been blind from birth and healed by Jesus. They did not believe that a genuine miracle had taken place. And this is because they refused to believe that Jesus was the true Messiah. They did not believe he was the Christ, the Son of God, uh, who had come into the world. They thought that Jesus was just a sinner and not a true miracle worker. They would have considered Jesus to be on the same level Uh, of a false prophet or a false teacher who was trying to lead the people of God astray. The purpose of these signs and miracles of Jesus was to glorify God, but also to point 
to Jesus as the true Messiah. It was to reveal him that he had come to be the Savior of the world. It was to bring sinners to faith and repentance in him. John says in his prologue, in his introduction to this gospel, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And in chapter 8 and in chapter 9, Jesus declares twice one of his I am statements. I am the light of the world. But their unbelief reveals a rejection of Jesus. And again, John says in the introduction of his gospel that he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. And then later in John's gospel, in John 12, 37, after working all these miracles, it says there, but, uh, through, but though he had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And so they come to his parents, the parents of this man who had been blind from birth, and they ask two questions of them. First, is this your son who you said was born blind? They, what they are wanting to know is this. Is this really your son, or is it just an imposter? Is it someone who simply resembles him, who looks like him? And their question is full of doubts. Uh, was he really born blind? Tell us the truth. And then they want to know a second question. How, uh, then how does he now see? Um, you may have been watching, a, a, my wife and I like to watch courtroom dramas sometimes on TV. And uh, sometimes when they're asking questions, my wife will blurt out in the middle of the show, objection calls for speculation before the TV lawyer actually does that. Uh, this is kind of what the Pharisees are doing here. They're asking the parents to more or less speculate about how this took place. Uh, they want the parents to draw a conclusion for which they have no expertise, no firsthand knowledge. And they're trying to essentially trap or intimidate the parents into denying that a miracle had ever taken place. And so the parents respond to this. And their replies to the first question is this. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. They answer truthfully, this is really him. And yes, he has been blind his entire life. We know these things for certain. But then they answer the second question. And here they begin to plead ignorance of what had happened. But, but as to how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. No, you notice they say absolutely nothing about Jesus here. They give no evidence that there was a miracle that took place or that Jesus had done the miracle. And the first thing you should realize here is that they are almost certainly lying when they say this. Well, how do we know we're lying? If you go back and read through this chapter of John's gospel, this blind man has no problem telling everyone that a miracle has taken place and telling everyone it was this man named Jesus who did it. He tells his neighbors that, he tells the crowds that, he tells the Pharisees like that. It stretches uh, all reasonableness to, to think that he never even told his parents what had actually happened. Well, they passed the responsibility of answering onto the son and in verse 21 it says ask him he is of age he will speak for himself according to the jewish law if a, a man was 13 years or older he was considered a man he could offer a testimony in court this man is probably older than that but they're saying he's of age you can ask him now most of you probably know that uh, harry truman when he was president 
had a famous saying, and someone once bought him a sign, and he left it on his desk. The buck stops here. Um, he was saying that the President of the United States should take responsibility for everything he did and not pass that blame on to someone else. The buck is not stopping here with the parents. They are passing the buck. They're passing the responsibility, the burden of answering this back to their son. And the reason they are doing that is because they are afraid. Verse 22 tells us the source of that fear. It says that his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Now what they are afraid of is what we would call in our day excommunication. Uh, being put out of, at that time the synagogue was like the local church. Uh, our ARP book of discipline defines uh, excommunication this way. It's a censure which excludes an offender from membership in the visible church. Now the problem is this, excommunication is usually reserved for a serious offense, unrepentant sin, uh, false teaching that leads people astray, and only after repeated warnings and after other measures had failed. I had the difficult task, or in my session I had a difficult task uh, at a previous congregation when I was in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, we had to excommunicate a gentleman who had committed adultery and was unrepented of his adultery. Uh, he was living with another woman at the time. He later repented of that and was restored, but excommunication was the step that took place before that. And remember, the Pharisees here are accusing Jesus of being a sinner. They're accusing Jesus of violating God's law. They think that he is, again, a false teacher who is leading God's people astray. And so if anyone were to point to Jesus as the true miracle worker, this would have gotten them in trouble. Right, so in his parents' case, if they were to confess that Jesus was the Christ and that he had been sent by God to redeem God's people, then this would have brought the wrath and the judgment of the Pharisees down upon them. And so they obviously considered, for example, their membership in the local synagogue to be an important thing, uh, and they were afraid of being canceled by this. Now, there's a very obvious application here, I think, that we can make, and that's the importance of something that's taken for granted a lot in our day, and that is church membership, membership in the visible church, fellowship and participation in the body of Christ at the local church level is absolutely vital to biblical Christianity. If you look at the book of Acts, Acts 2.42, after the day of Pentecost, it talks about what the people were devoted to. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread, which is another name for the Lord's Supper that you'll be observing this morning, and to prayers. This was vital that they came together and did these things. And something I always like to point out to people is consider how many times we read of all the one another passages in Paul's letters in the New Testament. The New Testament is full of the one another's. For example, uh, Romans 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Or Ephesians 4, 1, walk in a manner worthy of the, call, of the calling with which you were called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. And that's just a couple of verses. You could go on and on. You may want to uh, do a... Search for that sometime and see how many one another passages 
that we have in the New Testament. It would be very difficult for us to do any of those one another's if we were not uh, if we were cut off from other believers. And it's part of the spirit of this age, uh, conformity to this present world, to treat the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as something unimportant, something you were indifferent to, something not uh, necessary for our spiritual lives. Uh, I heard someone say recently, uh, people will say, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And the response to that was, you don't have to go home to be married to your spouse. But if you don't, there's probably going to be a lot of trouble and a lot of consequences as a result of that, we should want to come together as a body of believers. We should want to see that visible expression that we are a part of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are members of the flock of the Good Shepherd, and we should come together uh, with other believers in mutual love for one another. Uh, it's important that we do so out of a love, not, not out of a slavish devotion to some rule or regulation, but because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we love the Lord Jesus Christ, we will love the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there are other applications we can gather from this passage as well. And one is what I would consider to be a dominant sin in the lives of people, both Christian and non-Christian, in our present age, and that's sometimes referred to as the fear of man or the fear of others. That goes by many names. More recent names would be things like peer pressure, people-pleasing, codependency. Those are all relatively new terms for something that has been around for a long time. It is basically this. It's a desire to be thought well of by others, but a fear of what others may say or think about us and what we do. Uh, a book I would recommend to you is Ed Welch's When People Are Big and God is Small. He talks about this sin in the book and he says it's a kind of bondage. It's, it's, you're, you're controlled by other people, what they think about you. And he says this, I'm quoting here, he says, we replace God with people. Instead of a biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. And other people quietly take the place of God in your life. Now this is nothing new as I said and in fact it's something we see throughout the Bible. Fear of man, fear of others is why Abraham lied and said that Sarah was not his wife. Fear of others, in this case of a little girl, is the reason that Peter denied Jesus three times. In our case it may be something like this. Perhaps I should speak up about this particular issue. Uh, but I don't want to because I'm afraid what it might cost me. I'm afraid of what others might have to say about me. Um, or maybe I should uh, tell this person about Jesus. Maybe I should invite this person to church. But they may not want to be my friend anymore. So I'll just stay quiet and not say anything to them about it. These are various ways in which this can happen. And we're warned about the dangers of this uh, in the scriptures. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts the Lord will be exalted. And so the, the fear of man will bring us into bondage to others. We're being controlled by what others think about us. And so what's the solution for this? It's to trust in the Lord rather than in what others might think or do or say about us. And Jesus warns about this, about being ashamed of him 
and his word. He says in Mark chapter 8, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then Jesus will later tell his disciples in the upper room in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Understand, that will be the world's response to the gospel. It will hate the gospel. It will hate the truths of the gospel. But you cannot let that control you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul will say in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And it is this gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ which should be what controls us and guides us as bondservants of Jesus Christ. Now, the world will never be able to promise to us, and understand the world gives us all sorts of promises that they simply cannot keep and cannot uh, fulfill, but they will always pale in comparison to what we receive in Jesus Christ. And this is one of the problems with cancel culture. And I don't know if you've ever looked at it like this, but one of the things that cancel culture does is if you ever do anything wrong, Uh, Well, you better hope that no one ever finds out about it. I know of uh, a man and his wife who went to Gatlinburg uh, probably 10 or 15 years ago. And at that particular time, they simply walked into one of those old-time photography shops. And they decided to get their photographs made where the man was dressed in a Confederate outfit and was holding up a Confederate flag. And his wife was dressed like a Southern Belle. And... uh, that was all just in good fun in the day. And if that ever came out today, how would it be looked at in our culture where they could possibly be canceled simply for having this silly photograph taken years and years ago? And understand the standards change. They change with every generation. The world is continually moving the goalposts. This is why a politician could say a mere 10 years ago that marriage is simply between one man and one woman, and if the same politician said that today, it would be viewed as hate speech. The world is what is changing, not the standards, not God's standards, not the standards of the gospel. And in cancel culture, there is no forgiveness. There is no reconciliation. There is no redemption. Uh, The world is not uh, where your concern should be, though, because the world will not give you hope. And so we cannot simply live our lives in bondage to those impossible standards of the world. But understand this, there is forgiveness and there is redemption and there is reconciliation and there is absolute hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 7, In Him you have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of your trespasses according to the riches of His grace. 
Colossians 1, 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This past week I was listening to a sermon on Mark chapter 10 and it's the part of Mark's gospel where uh, James and John come to Jesus and they ask him uh, for permission to sit on his right and his left And uh, the other disciples become very upset about this when they find out about it. And Jesus takes them all aside and he says, your standards are like the world's standards. The world wants to dominate other people. The world wants to control other people. And it should not be this way among you. And to make matters worse than all this, Jesus had just told his disciples for the third time in Mark's gospel about the great cost, the great price he was going to to pay for our sins. Uh, We are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And then I always tell people, this passage concludes with Mark 10.45, and every Christian should have Mark 10.45 memorized. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. This is what he came for. He came as the suffering servant. He came to be the perfect substitute for our sin. He came as the good shepherd who not only guards the sheep, but lays down his life for his sheep. And so we are not to be ashamed of these things, but we are to proclaim them to a lost and dying world, no matter what the cost may be, no matter what the world may think of us. And you had the opportunity to do that this morning as you come to the Lord's table. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six: For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You are making a proclamation. You are making a declaration when you come in faith to the Lord's table and you partake of these elements. And it is your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're looking to the Lord Jesus Christ as the only one who can save you from your sins. The only one in whom your sins can be forgiven. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. How does the world look at this? The world will look at this and say it's just a piece of bread And it's just a tiny thimble full of liquid. What good could that do? And you look at that and you say, this is the body and blood of Christ. This shows what the Lord Jesus has done. The great price he paid. His body broken for me. His blood shed for me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. That is what you are declaring. And so you don't have to fear cancel culture because the Lord Jesus Christ has come. And guess what? He was canceled for us. Psalm 56, 11. For God, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Dear friends, if you have the Lord Jesus Christ, you have everything that you need. Paul says in Romans 8.31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also 
how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And so, dear friends, put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. May he be to you all your refuge and all your righteousness. And trust in him to be your perfect redeemer. And if you do so, you will not need to fear what others think of you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. And we ask that it would be an encouragement to us and a strengthening to us uh, this morning. That we would not fear the world around us, but that we would look with even a greater love and a greater admiration for the Lord Jesus Christ and for what he has done for us. May those thoughts be upon us as we prepare this morning to come to the Lord's table. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.